Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. My father visited from India recently. He turned 70 in nine days, and with chronic fatigue, heart attacks, and while he was here, he had a couple of trans-ischemic attacks. They're like mini-strokes. Just think of them like mini-strokes. I felt a sense of urgency to connect with him. I invited him to podcast about his childhood as it seemed like a good way to learn more about him, and I think it's important to humanize your parents wherever you get the chance to, just as people. The recordings I've done of my parents, in this case my father, will serve as a record for my nieces, but they also serve as insights, um, both for myself and for others, about how I became who I became. My father was sick when he arrived, and four weeks later he was still sick, so we recorded through the coughing because it seemed like the best opportunity I was going to get. Hopefully the compressor takes most of that out for you. Anyways, without further ado, here's the session. You are my issue. How does, how does that work? Well, a child is a father's issue, no? Issues from... Oh! That's, that's a usage of the word issue, that's all. I didn't realize that. Yeah. See, now you know you're my issue. Not in that sense. <laughs> There's two senses in the good sense. I don't know. Maybe it's not a good sense either. So I'll welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with my father, David Salmon, and we're going to talk a little bit about childhood. You don't seem super excited. That's okay. You don't have well, to be. It's been a while since <laughs> my childhood, you know. That's fair. What is your earliest memory? Wow. That's a tough one. Maybe because it's so long ago, but I think the earliest thing I remember was walking down the hill on Renfrew from Broadway toward Grandview Highway with my mom. We'd been shopping and come back on the bus, and I was bursting. I had to pee so bad, and I must have been, she wasn't carrying me, so I had to be three, four, somewhere in there. And she said, well, if you just can't make it any longer, you'll have to go in the bush. And there was a little bushy area, so I went in there. And I sort of didn't know what to do next, so she pulled my zipper down. She did everything for me, and then she, when I was finished, she says, well, for goodness sake, shake it. And that's all <laughs> I remember. And that was my first, that's the first thing I could think of. <laughs> oh, my goodness, that's a great memory. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's a good one, I guess. But I mean, it's both positive and negative, but that is a hilarious spin to put on it. For goodness sake, shake it. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's like I shouldn't know what I was doing, but I was pretty small. So Yeah, that's fair. 
speaking of that, what was your mother like? Mom. She's an English country girl from a small village in the middle of the, right in the middle of England, the Midlands. Mm-hmm. And full of, full of laughter and happiness and life. Like she was a jolly type. But I think bringing up the first three of us before Mike came along was the fourth, but the Frank, Kath, and Frank, myself, and Kath were. Mm-hmm. First three. Yeah, we were there for a while, and it was a big burden on her because my dad was never there. He was always at work. He was running the business. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was tough on her, and I was a difficult child. And Weren't we all? Well, uh, the two of us probably were. <laughs> I, I, I better keep my mouth shut. I'm going to get in trouble here. But, uh, yeah, I was a difficult child, which made it hard for her, too. Um, but she worked so hard about everything. She volunteered with the, the Cub Scouts, with church, with anything that they needed people. She just put her hand up and said, I'll help. And she worked. I, I guess it's a village way. I don't know. It was. I don't know where it came from. But she was one of those people that always pitched in and helped. Volunteered for the church bingos, trying to raise money to build a new church. Always working. And it, at the end of her life, she was just suffered so much. It just seems so unfair for someone who worked so hard. But that's just the way it is, I guess. Mm. Talking about the end of her life, um, do you want to talk about how she died? Is that something you're willing to talk about? Um, no, just yeah. give you an easy first podcast. Why not? You're all heart. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with talking about how my mother died. Death isn't a thing that bothers me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quite comfortable with it. But she suffered terribly. She developed leukemia as I understand it, from all the medications she'd been given by different specialists. And she had a very elderly old fellow who was a GP who felt intimidated by all these younger specialists and refused to question any of their medications. So she ended up with something like 15 different medications for everything from, um, what's the word I want, or hip, um, hip replacement? Yeah, she had a hip, hip replacement, but it was part of an arthritic, rheum, mm. not rheumatic, the other one, the deteriorating form of uh, arthritic. Osteopoetic? Yeah, that's good. You say, it, you say it better than I can. I think it's osteoporitic, but it Something doesn't matter. Like but yeah, no, she had medications for that. Later, she had medications for her gallbladder, which had to be removed. She had medications for colitis. It just, the list goes on and on. And as I said, she's taking 15 reasonably strong drugs every day, not supplements. These were drugs. Mm. And when they finally took her into the hospital in Duncan, I believe it was, the doctor just said, stop all medications. That's it. Nothing more. Um, and we'll see, and we'll try and medicate where we have to, but nowhere else. Mm-hmm. Just where we have to, as we see what's going on. And uh, he, I, I overheard him speaking, and I can't remember whether it was my brother Frank or my dad, that all those medications had destroyed her, her blood system, and she had leukemia as a result, and there wasn't a lot that could be done. She wouldn't live a whole lot longer. Mm. 
I just started my work with Nav Canada. I'd finished my training and come back. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have any leave built up. Mm-hmm. So I took whatever I could and went to, to the island because I was working in, in Richmond at the airport and we were living in Ladner then. So I went over to the island and I spent a few days there and then I had to come back. And I remember phoning from there because the doctor said it's time's going to be short now and asking my manager, can I stay another couple of days? I think she's not going to last much longer. And he said, no, no, you come back. You don't have any leave, you come back. Wow. So I went back to work and took a phone call about, it was a day shift. So in in the afternoon before the end of the shift, I took a phone call saying she's gone. Uh, too bad you weren't here. <laughs> but there was nothing I could do. And so I went to my manager and said, my mother just passed away. And he says, oh, you'd better take some compassionate leave. And he gave me three or four days leave at that point, which if it, had he just given me that before, would have been good, but that's not the way it worked. So I missed her, her passing, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, at least I saw her before that, a few days before, a couple of days before she passed away. But what I remember most was after the funeral, we went back to Mom and Dad's house where Kath is upstairs, though not where Kath's staying now, but upstairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just missed her and I remember walking down to her room and she passed away in December and she'd gone into the hospital about a week before she passed away not very long before but when I got into her room and looked on her bed there was a gift with my name on it because my birthday is the 22nd and she'd literally thought to buy me a gift and wrap it Wow. Before she went into hospital because she figured she wasn't coming back. It's it's hard to speak about it now. It's still mm. emotional, but you can imagine at that moment. Oh, that would have been really intense. Yeah. Like very poignant to see that what it represented and the caring and the affection. Yeah, that was my mom. Yeah, very caring. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't sound easy. It sounded well, meaning- it sounded meaningful though. Yeah, those things are good to say. Yeah, not easy, but they're good to say. Mm-hmm. They remind you of the quality of the people you come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, moving on from that, um, speaking of her quality, do you want to talk more about what your relationship was like with her while she was young, when, when, while you were young, your sort of early memories of your mom and sort of... Just that I was a, a rotten kid. I mean, I, I just... Really? Well, no, I wasn't bad, but I was just so full of energy. I didn't understand. I didn't, I had no concept of what was good or bad. As a kid, I remember mm-hmm. picking up this big marker on the playground and thinking, this is cool. <laughs> and we had to, we, we were lined up outside and there was D'Souza marching music, you know, and we had to march into, into the school and write to our class. And I remember putting this thing on the wall <laughs> and drawing a line all the way up the stairs, all the way down the hallway, all the way down to my class, 
into my class, right down to my desk <laughs> and to my desk. Talk well, about stupid and talk about... I didn't realize I was doing anything wrong. I was just in my own little world doing did you, this. Did you finish with an arrowhead so they, they were really certain who to blame? I should have marked X or something on my forehead. I don't know. But <laughs> there was a group. There was the principal... These were all nuns. Uh, the principal and a couple of senior <laughs> oh, no. nuns all came. You could hear the footsteps clunk, clunk, clunk down the hallway. Mm. Stuck their head in the door. And I, at that point, I sort of looked at the line and thought, uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> I got strapped pretty good for that. Um, but, yeah, I was I was a troublesome kid. Not because there was any evil in me, but I was just so unaware of the of the good and bad of things, I was just mm. living in this little dream world of my own all the time, and at home I used to do stupid stuff like that too, and my mom used to just freak out. She'd have work to do because I spilled something, or I should have been more careful. But I was just a kid and crazy. I mean, kids and, aren't kids are going to be kids. They're not going to be more careful. You can tell, uh, you know, a seven oh, or yeah. eight year old to oh, be yeah. careful. Many, many, many kids are more careful than I was, <laughs> and I was full of energy. I mean, my sure. tray grew up with that kind of energy and my mother said I'm glad you got one like that because I'd given her so much trouble so I yeah that's the way it was when we were younger we were close but I made her life difficult and I shouldn't have but it wasn't in any way conscious or intentional it's just mm -hmm. the way it works out when you're little did that relationship change as you got older and had kids, like you said? Well, as I got older, when I was in university, I just could not figure out where I was supposed to go or what I was supposed to do. And I think I really disappointed her by not becoming a big engineer, doctor, or something that she was proud of, because she thought I was going to be the one. Frank was going to be a priest, my elder brother. Right. So the next was me, and I should have been the one that went to university and done all the big deeds and I mean you started going to university you're the only one in your in your of your siblings to go to university aren't you <laughs> no frank finished his oh right he, and became a um a priest. An, what's the word i'm thinking of accolade theologian theologian oh you know I, I know people that would know the word but uh i'm trying to think of went to he went to he went to seminary right yeah and then became an oblate that is the word i was looking for yeah, but he also went to University of Ottawa, and he got his theology degree. So he's, right, right. he was a theologian as well as got a, you. an oblate priest. Oblates are an order. Right. One of many, like Jesuits and others. I honestly don't know a lot about oblates. I just know that Frank is one. Well, that's right. So, I mean, from my perspective, I assume that, uh, that oblates are highly competitive people. <laughs> No, I don't. It's based think so. on my experience. I don't with think so. Frank, Je I mean. Jesuits are much more the go-getters of the world in terms of priests. I mean, I was more making a joke about Frank's Frank, personality. Yeah, well, yeah, if he's, if he's one were to judge all oblates by Frank, we'd have a very specific view of them. Yeah, well, we could we could extend that analogy to all sorts of people. <laughs> That's fair. We better not. That's fair. Um, so speaking, if I can sort of wind things back to school, since we're sort of talking about university. Um, you mentioned you got strapped at school. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the experience of being at sort of a religious or, I suppose, Catholic school. What year would that have been that you were in Catholic school? What years were you there? I was there from grade one right through till grade eight. 
not my exact intention, but that is an answer to my question. I'm curious, like, what time period you were there for? Well, it was eight years, I think. Of, of, <laughs> of the common era, of the common era. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll figure it out. I don't know. Grade... Well, what year were you born in? 49 when I was six, so 55. Okay. So it was a long time ago. I mean, you're talking antique, 55 to... Plus seven what? years, say? So Seven 62. or eight, yeah, 62, 63. Beginning of the 60s. That was my time. I was a child of the 60s, yeah, for sure. What was that like? Just, I mean, because, I mean, television would have been in color by then, right? I remember when I was little being taken to my grandfather's to see TV, to see a television, because <laughs> nobody had seen one before. That's cool. He was in... one of the first people to have one in our area. Awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it wasn't even just that, like, color TV was new, but, No, like, no, black and white was black new. Black and white was new. There was no question of color yet. That was a long time later. Oh, I guess my, uh, my history's a little off. Um, when did, when did you start seeing color TVs? Do you remember how old you would have been? No, I haven't got a clue, but it was some years later. Got you, yeah. Wasn't, I'm... wasn't the biggest thing in my life that there was color on TV. Sure. <laughs> but... Yeah, it, had, it happened at some point. I don't know when exactly. Can, I guess Wizard of Oz would have been one of the you big You can wiki there. that one. Yeah, exactly. That's fair. <laughs> um, so what was that sort of, what, what has that been like technologically, like witnessing, you know, like, oh, cool, this is what a TV is, all the way through the, you know, the advent of the internet and email and cell phones as computers and cell phones as phones <laughs> before they became computers in the same sense that they are today? Yeah, I guess it's the same for every generation you go through that and you see I mean my parents generation went from the wheel <laughs> almost up to the pre up to well not quite the present they didn't quite make it this far but each generation has another stretch and there's a lot of change going on I don't know if that's accelerated or not I mean there was a huge amount of change before the war and after the war right because you were born just after the war yeah I guess he would have been born in 49. 50 years before the new millennium. Yep. And now much. you're now you're about two decades into the new millennium here in the next couple yep. of weeks. Yeah, a couple of weeks and I'm 70. Five decades before, two decades after. And in some senses... Does that though, mean I get three more to be balanced? I hope so. <laughs> oh, I'm not so sure. Three more would put me over 100, and that might be a little tough going, I, don't, I would think. I mean, it depends on one's experience of life, really. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they'd be good decades. Well, I'm sure I'd make them good if, if I were physically well enough, but mm. the body doesn't always cooperate, <laughs> as we've noticed. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, thinking more about childhood, because we talked a little bit about um, technology and your mom. I'm curious to sort of circle back, because you mentioned that you were that you sort of had this fear that maybe you were a disappointment for your mom. Mm -hmm. what, what gave you that idea other than, because I mean, it, it doesn't seem fair if that you should be the sibling that should go to university and do all these things. Well, Kathy did it. She got her degree and became a teacher. So and, and Frank was, became a priest and got a degree yeah. too. So it feels like yeah, so I was the one black sheep. <laughs> no, what about, Mike what about was Mike? a black sheep too, I guess. Okay. Well, two, two university. Educated. I doubt if I could even compete with him <laughs> when it came to black sheep. He managed to do it really well. That's kind of like the true middle child experience, not front of the pack, not back of the pack, just sort of in the pack. Could be. 
do you think that, I mean, well, I mean, I almost wonder if that helps you relate to your middle child. Um, if you sort of identify with Mark at all, just having <sighs> both been middle child and children. I think I identify with all three of you. Yeah. Very much. And I think the way human development goes, there's a lot of my experience that helps me understand your experiences. Mm. I mean, yours, I mean, in the plural sense, all three of you. Mm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of siblings, how did you relate to your brothers? Well, my elder brother was just that much older as a sibling when we were little. Mm -hmm. They didn't really want anything to do with me because three and a half years, I mean, the difference is like an eight-year-old to a four-and-a-half-year-old. What, what's an eight-year-old want to play uh, with a four-and-a-half-year-old for? Yeah. And there was a one, one person on the block of all our neighbors who was his age, roughly, and mom would say, take Dave and go out and play because she didn't want me around to make him trouble. So I'd supposed to go out and play with my brother. We'd get out to the front yard. He'd see his friend in the distance, and he'd say, uh, okay, close your eyes, count to a hundred. And he says, then come and find me. And then they would take <laughs> off and there was no way I was finding him. They were long gone. And so I'd be on my own and I'd go back and my mom would say, well, go out and find him, go and play. So you'd be just on your own. Yeah, more or less. A lot of the time, just sitting, looking at stuff and nothing to do. So I tried to find ways to entertain myself. And there was a creek with, with, uh, crawdads in it. Yeah, we used to go down and play in there a bit. And sometimes there were a couple of other kids close to my age that would come and play. But it just depended. What are so. what are crawdads, you said? Crawdads? Well, what's the proper word for that? I don't know. Crayfish. Oh, okay. Like little lobster-like things, but smaller. Mm -hmm. Freshwater in the... Still Creek used to go by the front of our house at one point. Right, because you grew up in Vancouver. I did. Yeah, that makes you... You're in the minority. <laughs> So few people that are in Vancouver grew up in Vancouver. Or... My dad and I were both born at St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. My dad was born there, and then some years later I was born there. And then I was born in Richmond General. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it goes back a ways. Mm -hmm. I guess, was your grandfather an immigrant from England? Yeah. Yeah, he supposedly stowed away on a ship and worked his way across to Halifax. <coughs> Which makes me, I guess, fourth generation um, Canadian on my English side. Yeah, I guess so. Um, he second. evidently worked his way all across the country doing various jobs and farms and hit the West Coast and it was either a long swim to Japan or stay here. <laughs> so, yeah, no, he worked his way right across the country and literally stopped in Vancouver and started his first business in a, on Richards downtown beside the cathedral. Mm -hmm. There was a little step down into a little place that was his office and started with his one Model T Ford. Wow. And his uh, his oldest son, my, my dad, your grandfather. Just making deliveries or? Yeah, starting that's exactly what they did. <coughs> and then <coughs> deliveries would later evolve into moving Excuse and me. cartage and all <coughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, over the years, which affected me lots because when I was, as soon as I was old enough to, what would it be, 10-ish, 10 10-11? Mm-hmm. In the winter, I had to get up early in the morning before school and start the trucks up when it was a busy time at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. And in those old days, the chokes, you pull the choke out to get it to start. 
And then as it started to warm up, you could keep pushing the choke until they were all the way in. And one of the reasons that he wanted me to do that was as a driver just to get in when they were cold, pull the choke out and just leave it out. And that would eventually just bung up the engine full of, uh, I don't know. Probably sludge, oil, just oil like and, yeah, uncombusted yeah. fuel and stuff, yeah. <coughs> Doing okay? Yeah, just his throat's bothering me a little bit, but not too bad. You can carry on. Okay. <clears throat> I finished my Tulsi ginger tea. You're still working on uh, your tea? Yep. Yeah. All right. If you need more hot water, let me know. So that's that's interesting. So he started a business, which I guess would have been Salmon's Moving and Storage or Salmon's Transfer? Salmon's Transfer, yeah. And then Moving and Storage came later? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. When after he sold it to the workers, he was idealistic and sold it to all his drivers so that mm -hmm. it wouldn't be owned by a big company from the east. And there was there were big companies from the east that wanted to buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an interesting job to have as a kid to be starting all these trucks. Oh, yeah. In. Yeah. I remember, <coughs> excuse me, I remember having to sweep out the trucks, roll up the ropes, fold up the pads, stack everything in the truck neatly, close it up, drive it down the lane. When I was about 14, I got to drive it down the lane. One gear, only one gear. And uh, pull it into the, into the gas station fuel it up, check the oil, top the water up, check all the tires, and then run back down the alley again and park it. And I had to do all the trucks like that, one after the other. And at that point, there would have been about 15 or 16 trucks, I guess. So it took me a while, but after that, I got a quarter. <laughs> right. With that quarter, I could go with some other kids in the block on a Saturday right. up to the Rio, which is on Broadway, the old and it was the old Rio movie that the people are still arguing over that place. Yeah, no, the the Rio Theater is still going strong in Vancouver. There was a whole Save the Rio campaign where people yeah. publicly helped fund, I think, keeping it, um, or petitioned um, funding from somewhere. I don't quite know the specifics of it. I just remember seeing it on Facebook. And yeah, well, I was one of those kids who used to watch Gene Autry and all the old old Western serials and Flash Gordon and whatever there on a Saturday afternoon on the matinee. Mm -hmm. For a quarter. That's that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of... I wish you could do it for a quarter now. But. <laughs> I think earning potential has risen with cost of living, but unfortunately... Yeah, I, I did think... a lot of work for my quarter. Yeah. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I don't know that uh, earning potential has risen equally with cost of living in Vancouver. But... No, probably not. But, but there... that was that was my dad's idea, was to teach us the value of money, make us do work, and, and value work as a thing in itself. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got lots of chance to do that as I grew up. That is something uh, I bet you did. Um, oh, yeah. I feel like that's something I'm developing a, a, a knowledge of. And the more, the more, um, I mean, I'd always sort of had that from a young age. I had sort of um, thought a lot about business ways to make money. I can remember um, when we were hosting a raffle at, at um, I forget whether it was uh, Cub Scouts or whether it was at school, but there was some sort of raffle I had brought home. And I remember being like, why don't I just get my, start my own raffle? Make yeah. my own tickets. Like, this is such a good racket that the school's got going. Why am I not just hosting my own raffle and getting people to throw in prizes for advertising? Why don't I just do this? And I remember you let me get through designing the raffle tickets, printing them out, cutting them up. And then you said, you can't actually hand those out, Vic. <laughs> just remember you kind of, I didn't really feel like I had a direction to go with it. But 
you sort of let me go as far as I would go with it until you're like, okay, but I'm not going to let you actually break the law. <laughs> you can't well, I like your side. industry, but my dad, I remember as I got a little older and into my teen years, mm-hmm. I started to move into hippie directions and mm. some really great rock music and the Grateful Dead and all that stuff. And there was this one uh, big outdoor concert down in Washington State that I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. And he kept me working and working and working. And he knew that it was on the Saturday, Sunday. Oh. I think the Friday, he ended up sending me on an office move at about 11 at night. And I got off of that at about 2.30 or 3 in the morning. Went home, crashed, took a bath, picked up my buddy, Greg, who lived just up on Broadway and Renfrew. And we headed down and we got to the border and this guy, I don't know, he, the border guard must have been a, an ex-Marine or something. Mm-hmm. He just says, you boys ain't going down. He asked where we were going. So he said, we're going to the festival down there to listen to some music. He says, that is full of communists. You ain't going down there. And he turned us around and sent us back. Wow. And I said to Greg, well, his shift's bound to end. He must have been on the midnight shift. We'll go back after he's left. So we went back to where my parents had a house in Crescent Beach, crashed for another hour or two, took off again. This time we just said we're going, just going down for the day. Guy said, sure, go ahead. (laughs) So we went down. It was a great, great time, yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah, um, the advice I've always been given is is behave like you're a, a teenager that's trying to tell your parents as little as possible. So when the border guards are asking you where you're going, oh, I'm, you know, going to Seattle. What's in Seattle? Oh, you know, I'm going to go meet a friend. Um, you know, what's your friend's name? This is my friend's name. Where they live, this is their address. What are you going for? Oh, just to catch up with a friend. Like, just, just give them as little information as possible. Hmm. Something plausible, short as I've possible. I've never been that organized. Honestly, I wasn't either until I had a border crossing experience where I was crossing with a Mexican national. Ooh, that was, that was pretty intense. Mm. Um, then they searched the tour, the whole car part searched it. They found some business cards in my glove compartment. And, you know, you said you weren't going down for business purposes. Well, I just didn't think that business cards were, you know, contraband. I'm happy to throw them all out right now. They're not, they don't really meet, they're, they're old business cards that have been sitting in my glove compartment. Boy, was that immigration officer very suspicious that I was going to go and conduct business mm. in the United States with those business cards. Something to do with your face, I think. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you must have sure. looked suspicious. I, don't know. I mean, I wasn't nervous. Even when they were questioning me, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get turned around for business cards. Like, I couldn't conceptualize that. He started saying to me, like, you realize you have no... Um, I don't have to let you into the country. Like, you realize I could just turn you around. I said, oh, yeah, I have no illusion that you have absolutely have the power to turn me around. So it was... It's very interesting um, how much when you grow up near the border, you just get really used to crossing it and it doesn't feel like a big deal. And then sometimes it's just a really big deal. Okay. So had a good time at the concert. When you were, when you were at school, um, what was your favorite class? Did you enjoy school much? When I got to high school, I went to Vancouver College and I had one or two friends there that I really liked. There's some good guys there, really good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those schools that was famous for having lots of rich kids there, but there was also a group of kids whose parents just wanted them to get a good education and they weren't that well off, Mm. but they, 
sacrificed and made sure that kids could go there. Mm-hmm. And some of those guys, we sort of grouped together because we weren't in the elite group, didn't have fancy cars or anything like that, took the right. bus. And uh, there were some really good guys, nice guys that I remember till this day. And I enjoyed them. Um, I think class-wise, Magilla Gorilla was the name of the teacher. No, that's just what we called him. His brother O'Grady. And he was built like a gorilla. He was about five, four, five, five, and about three foot in the width from shoulder right down through his hips. <laughs> Must have been a lineman when he played football as a younger guy because he was just block solid. Mm-hmm. But he had one of the nicest personalities, easygoing. He didn't, he wouldn't let anything get away in the class. You couldn't talk or anything. He was strict that way. But as a human being, he was decent and very respectful if you worked hard at the at the math so we were doing he was our math teacher and we were doing uh, analytic geometry and i loved that the puzzles i just loved the puzzles and using all the axioms and theorems and figuring it all out and there were at the end this buddy tim and i we used to do all our homework at the end of class we'd have 15 20 minutes to start our homework we used to finish it entirely he would take the odd i would take the even we'd do all we'd swap that's so good yeah yeah and we'd have it all done but then there were the extra difficult questions that you weren't supposed to do you didn't have to do they were there to challenge people while tim and i would decide which ones we were going to try and get and then if he couldn't get one he'd phone me if i couldn't get one i'd phone him and we'd work on them together but we always got through those really tough ones, and it was like super challenging. Inevitably, someone in class the next day would ask the brother O'Grady, uh, could you show us how to get this one? It's try and try, and we couldn't get it. And he would look at it for a while. Of course, he had no time to prep himself, and you have to really analyze. And he's at the end, he's toward the end of the class, and he would sort of look at it. He says, well, uh, Offhand, he says, I'm not sure. He says, anyone get it? Tim and I both, bing, hands go straight up. And he just, well, I figured as much. He says, which one do you want to do it today? And we'd go up and we'd do the whole thing. And he used to shake his head every time and say, well, you guys are something. So we had a good time. And that's that's my some of my best memories of, of school because it was challenging intellectually and mentally, like it made you work and made you think. And it was fun. I mean, we really had a good time with it. Great. Awesome. Um, so the only thing I haven't really asked you about much is your dad. Hmm. Yeah. My mom grew up in an English village and was a war bride. My dad went over to the war and brought her back as his bride. So classic war bride situation. But my dad grew up... As I said, my granddad has started that business, and from a young age, he was helping his dad at work, which meant he'd gone to school at St. Joseph's, which was the only school that was open in the area he was at in East Van. Mm-hmm. And I think he just finished his high school, basically, um, and then started working with his dad a lot. Mm-hmm. He told me when he was 14, he was driving already and he just hoped like heck that no cop would ever stop him. And he was driving trucks that had solid tires, no pneumatic tires in those days. That's how old, the old Franklin's like really right. cool old trucks with no no pneumatic tires. And uh, he said, there's a guy with a fancy car that made a crazy left turn and run right into him. And he was just sweating bullets thinking that 
that was it. He was going to be done by the police. And this guy knew he was wrong and gave him some money, which they had no money. It was depression. You know, there was no money around. This right. guy gave him some money. He says, don't tell anybody about this. He <laughs> says, this is to fix your truck, but don't say anything to anyone. He says, I have no idea why he was worried, whether he was borrowing someone's car or what it was. But he says, I got some money, which I could take back to my dad. And the damage to the truck was minimal because it was a solid old rock of a truck. And, uh, yeah, that was his story he told me about when he was young driving truck. Wow. But they went through the Depression. They'd move people's furniture, and they'd be paid by whatever was left in the garden. Mm. So they would get half a dozen turnips and, you know, some beetroots and whatever wow. was there in the garden. That's what they would be paid. And they'd take it home, and, and my grandmother, your great-grandmother, would cook them up, you know, and make stews and soups out of it for the next so many days and that's what they would eat and that was Oof. what it was like during the depression you got rations for fuel right <coughs> and sometimes you got paid with food and fuel rations because that's all people nobody had right. money very few people really had money but they had to move and they had to work so yeah mm -hmm. whatever you got we'll take and we'll move you and that was the way it went so you can understand how frugal that would make someone. Mm -hmm. And my mother was frugal because she'd been through the war when there was almost nothing to eat in Britain. It was what they grew in their backyard that they managed. And my old, my granddad used to go sh with a slingshot and get uh, rabbits out in the field. Wow. So that's the only meat they ever got. That is seriously self-reliant, survivalist type stuff. Well, that's what it was like during the war. I mean, people didn't have much. Yeah, it sort of sounds like it. She said the only meat you ever got in a ration was mixed with sawdust to make right. it go further. Right, because it was rationed. Yeah, and it wasn't the best tasting meat they ever had. Uh, I've never been partial to eating trees. <laughs> You're not a beaver. Yeah, that's fair. Neither were they, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, my family were extremely frugal, and that rubbed off on me to some extent. I'm sure all my partners would tell you that that rubbed off on me to some extent. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. funny how far back these things go. Yeah, it didn't rub off on all my children, though. But <laughs> we'll leave that alone. But Sure. <laughs> um, so how did things sort of grow with your dad as you sort of oh, got right. a house and started a family? Like, did he, did you feel he like he was always working? Right. I mean, he had a business to run. He ran it almost single-handedly. Um, he paid his labor out of his pocket with cash. And they collected cash for the jobs. And he'd have this wad of cash that he'd walk around with. And drivers told him, you know, be careful. Someone's going to roll you one day if you walk around with all that wad. And he just said, no, they won't. But... Um, yeah, he was just always working. So he only came home at around 6.37, would eat, and then go back to work and set up the next day until probably 9.30. We were going to bed by that time as kids. So we hardly ever saw him except Sunday. We all had to go to church on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Well, we are almost there. He was also a disciplinarian. His father and mother were literally 
of the Victorian era, and he was brought up in that era, so he believed in physical punishment and mm. and spanking, and I got lots of that being troublesome child that I was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I never never forget those things. That was that, and it was one of the things that I determined I would never strike my children. Never was I going to spank one of my kids or hit them for something they'd done. Mm-hmm. I don't believe I ever did. I mean, I have vivid memories of you doing it at least once. But I would have been like three. I think it's one of my youngest memories. I smacked you? Um, on, the, on the bottom. I doubt if I did it seriously. Um, it was like... It was like nine or ten times pretty seriously. Um, I think in true in true parental fashion, it may have hurt you more than it hurt me. But uh, <laughs> um, wow. but I I remember you I remember you giving me like one one wailing on the ass, and I remember I don't even remember what it was in relation to because again I couldn't have been more than three or four. Like I remember being really young and I have very that's, little context. Yeah, that sounds very strange to me because i mm. swore i would never would mm. i might have done it once i guess if, if you say so but i don't think the other two ever that's good got anything i mean i also and... had a i don't know if pension's the right word but i definitely uh i definitely got under your skin a couple of times as a kid as well i'm sure i mean listeners can't see the sideways glances but <laughs> yeah well you know like a tick <laughs> you were always under my skin. You're under your mother's skin more than mine, I think. But mm-hmm. yeah, you weren't the easiest child to bring up. That's fair. But I mean, neither was I. I know. So, mm-hmm. but I think if you're going to be a parent, you have to accept that you're not going to enjoy every minute of it by any means. It's yeah. it's going to be a challenge, and your children are going to be challenges. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, not everybody should be a parent. That is a very fair point. And it tries, even the most well-intentioned person, it can try very, very difficult. Um, that's not the word I wanted, I guess, but very, very seriously. I mean, it makes it very difficult to be a good parent. Mm-hmm. But I think the the key is that you have to try and back up everything with love. I mean, if you do scold a child you have to wait until they're ready because they're not ready when they're being scolded and give them a hug when they come back because they will come back i always saw that whether it was mark or my tray or you if i scolded you and said you've done something bad you go to your room and stay there for a while and think about it and uh i can remember with mark especially many times i'd be in the kitchen i'd sort of turn around and he'd be he'd have come up the hall from his bedroom and he'd be sort of looking in the door and that was the moment. I knew that was the moment. And I'd say, come here. And I'd give him a hug. And I said, you realize what happened? And you know why everything happened the way it did? Uh-huh. I said, cool. Don't worry about it. It's not serious. It's something you learn. And mm-hmm. we just carry on from there. As long as, you know, we're a family, we're together, we'll manage. Mm-hmm. And it was always it was always a thing of not trying to do it too soon. And inevitably, mm-hmm. I discovered, and it took me a while to realize, but a child will always come back to you mm-hmm. and always look for that support. And, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the best thing I learned to being a parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess the um, the last sort of question I had was more about your dad's death, like how how your relationship was with him sort of towards the end and, and what that was like. 
Well, I made a real effort toward the end, as you'll probably remember, actually, mm-hmm. that I tried to go and see him on the island, mm-hmm. and I couldn't really afford to take a vehicle across on the ferries every time two ways because mm-hmm. it was so expensive. Yeah. So I'd walk on, and he would meet me at the ferry, and he always wanted to play his par three pitch and putt golf. Right. So he would take me along, but I noticed after a while, he said, well, come on the next ferry. And he would pay his par three pitch and putt golf and then pick me up because I guess I was just too bad. <laughs> and I, it was either, I don't know whether it embarrassed him or it was too painful to watch or what it was. But <laughs> that, and I remember thinking, yeah, okay, I understand. <laughs> because I wasn't good at golf. I had no time to play golf. So mm-hmm. I never, I hadn't played more than a few times before I started to play with him and mm-hmm. it showed. So I used to go and try and at least spend time with him as much as I could. Yeah, he didn't get the medications. The medications he was using, other doctors had never seen because he was seeing one of the lead specialists in the world on arrhythmia, mm. who was a Chinese fellow out in Chiang, I believe, in uh, UBC. Okay. And and a really advanced uh, researcher in, into arrhythmia and medications. And so if he went to a doctor on the island, they just sort of, oh, I don't know what you're taking. I've never heard of this. And he w- did once or twice go all the way back to UBC, but it was a difficult trip to make each time he wanted to update his medications. Mm-hmm. And his heart was also giving him some troubles. But he he told me when he was in the hospice, and I guess he he wouldn't accept that he was dying even in the hospice. There was no way he was giving up. But he said, you know, I went to that doctor and I said to him, listen, I can feel the congestion around my heart. Mm-hmm. He said, I've got congestive problems that are going to cause my heart to fail if I allow it to get any worse. I've had this once before, and they gave me medication that removed a lot of diuretic of some sort that got that fluid away from his chest. And the doctor said, well, I'll give you a, um, what do you call those? uh, Asthmatics have those. uh, Like an inhaler? Ah, that's the word I couldn't get. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he, they gave him an inhaler and said, use this, this will clear your chest, you know. And my dad said, well, no, no, that's, that's not the type of, con- you don't understand. The congestion is heart congestion. It's not chest congestion. Doctor said, well, humor me. He says, take it for two weeks. If it doesn't do any good, he said, then we'll, we'll take the next step. But, but, of course, he was in the hospital before that. And they were defibrillating him every minute two minutes he was defibrillated again and again and again jeez uh, yeah it was it was brutal to watch i mean they they hit that defibrillator on him trying to control the arrhythmia which was caused by the stress caused by the congestion on the heart right so had had the one thing not been there that he'd probably been all right with the arrhythmia right but um yeah it was horrible to watch they just kept hitting him with the defibrillator over and over and they finally said we can't do anything here and they got an ambulance and had him sent down to victoria and i forget who went with him but they said yeah they kept defibrillating him all the way down to victoria oh my goodness and in the hospice he told me he says he says when you're unconscious and they defibrillate you it's not fun but you're not aware of the worst of it but he says when you're fully conscious and they're defibrillating you're trying to get your heart to to reset reset it's like someone taking two bricks and slamming you on the side of the head. He said, it's awful. Wow. And, and over and over, he said, I just, I kept thinking, 
stop. I have, I can't take this anymore. Please stop. And he said, there was just, I just had to keep going through it till I got to Victoria. Wow. And they did get him under control with medications there. They had some doctors who knew a little more about it. They say that there's a lot of value in living near an urban center when you're older to have access to the highest levels of care. And ironically, it's the opposite of what most people do. Most people just want to slow down. They don't want the same high-paced environment, and they tend to move away towards rural yeah. areas. Yeah. And unfortunately, in this province, there aren't enough doctors for people even in the big centers, let alone the... Sure. You get out of the big centers, there are no doctors almost. Really sure. tough. I find in Vancouver now, it's not too bad. I have a, a family doctor and I have a, uh, I have a walk-in doctor that I treat like my family doctor because he's more convenient and closer. And I have a really good rapport established with this walk-in doctor. Mm. So works well. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that was your experience of your father's sort of um, his health going. Yeah. And then as he got worse, I mean, the doctors said to him, you do realize, you know, that this is, and the doctor was trying to be very diplomatic about saying the end was coming. Mm-hmm. And I remember my father sort of laughing at him and saying, oh, I'll bring on the dancing girls. I'm ready to go. You know, that was his attitude. And he just would not. And he was always good in the mornings. And people would come to visit him and they'd all be laughing and say, oh, God, Frank's in great shape, you know. And then at night, when I was, I had to do the night shifts for the watch because... <coughs> All my siblings told me, you work with night shifts. No, none of us do night shifts. You do. So you do the night shift with dad and we'll fill in all the day shifts because we're not used to staying up all night. So you got And you I got sort of scratched my head at the logic of that one because maybe I shouldn't be doing night shifts anymore since I do them at work as well. But anyway, I did all the <laughs> night shifts. Every night I was there and spent all night with my dad, which wow. was in a way good, but he was sleeping much of the time. And I felt almost guilty that I wasn't there during the day when I could have chatted with him, mm-hmm. which would have been nice, but I, I guess my siblings got the chat with him when he was at the end. But uh, he he died, I think, five times on me, five different nights in a row. And then the sixth night he was gone and finally gone. But each time he would start to have a seizure and he, his eyes would roll back and he'd arches back and his heart would stop and he would finally collapse under the pressure of it and the nurse who was there would come and check and say he's gone now wow and i'd say okay thank you i'll just stay with him for a little while and she would go out to leave me alone to be with him for a bit and then i thought no she's i have to call frank and she'd come back and before i could call frank she'd say wait wait he's breathing a little bit And he would come back, and he would be fine. And in the morning, he would sleep all night, have a good sleep from that point on. And in the morning, he'd be in great shape, telling jokes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. And my siblings say, oh, he's doing well. And I said, well, you weren't here last night when he wasn't doing well. Right. Really? And and I would tell them, no, seriously. And I would explain what happened. They said, well, it doesn't look like it now. And it didn't. And that went on five days in a row that he had those seizures. And the nurse would tell me every day, he's gone now. That's got to have a really dramatic impact on you. Well, yeah. And it was like, by the third day, I was, mm, let's wait and see. Because <laughs> I've been through this emotional thing two days already. <clears throat> and the third day, I, I'd rather wait and just be sure. And sure enough, he came back. And the last day, 
was a little different because I remember it happening and the nurse came and she said, yeah, I think he's gone now. And it was a little different. He wasn't, he didn't look as peaceful afterwards. He looked more empty. I don't know how to put it, but, and I remember sitting there and feeling this spirit leave him. It was one of those, it was like a baby spirit. I don't know. You know the innocence in a baby's eyes? That feeling of absolute innocence and purity? It was like that. This slightly luminous, tiny thing left him and went up like almost into emptiness, into nothing. It just moved. And then I knew that it was over, and the nurse came and said, yeah, no, he's definitely gone. And then I called Frank, and Frank came and gave me absolute shit for not having called him sooner. <laughs> because he said, you should have known he was dying. You should have called me. And I said, in that case, I'd have called you every night for six nights in a row, and you'd be shouting at me for calling you when he wasn't dead. Right. And he said, but he couldn't, he was hurt. He was badly hurt that he wasn't there when he died. Mm. And being a priest, he wanted to give him the last rites as soon as possible as he was dying. And he couldn't do all that. So it upset Frank quite a bit. Mm. And of course, unfortunately, I was the one who was <laughs> at fault, as usual. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, that was what I remember, the sort of the end of my dad's life. And he did say one time before he passed, one night he sort of became conscious for a bit. And he says, Dave, I wanted to ask you what you think about death. So I began to answer, and I realized he wasn't there anymore. He drifted back out of, awareness. Out of consciousness yeah. and awareness. And I talked for a couple of seconds and sort of said, you know, can you are you can you hear any of this, Dad? Like, you know, give me some sign that you're hearing something. And he was gone. He wasn't there. So I never did get to talk about that with him. But uh, it was funny that he was thinking enough. I felt good enough that he just asked me. Mm -hmm. that he wanted to know. It's clear he was aware that you were spending nights with him and that he cared yeah. about what you thought. And... Well, yeah, and that he would ask and be interested to know my opinion. That that made me feel good, but I wish we'd had a chance to talk, but we never did. It's also clear you were at least some comfort. I mean, he could have woken up and had no one there, but clearly when he woke up, he saw you, thought of you, and had that comfort and went back to sleep. I suppose. I don't know if you call going back to sleep, but he sort of... Lost awareness, yeah. Yeah, drifted back into whatever state he was in but yeah they were they're all in a way good memories they weren't easy at the time but looking back on them i don't feel bad about them they're good well i suppose it's service right you get to show someone you care by doing service when they really need it and when there's literally no real payout except the emotional payout for you personally both ends of life are like that mm. when a baby's tiny your love is unconditional. You clean that shit out of the diaper and you wipe their bottom and make sure they don't get sores and clean them nicely. And they'll never know. They'll never remember those things. And you do that for... And at the end of life, it becomes the same thing. People are no longer fully aware. And mm -hmm. you do what you can to support them and help them. Mm -hmm. So both the beginning and the end of life, it's... You have to have the ability or you have to enjoy in a way that feeling of service that's a loving service with no expected return of any sort. Yeah. 
I remember telling my tree before she went had her first baby, it's the one thing that you will never regret in your life is having a chance to love at that level because it'll change you. Mm-hmm. And it does. That's beautiful. I think uh don't want to compare it quite to um things like uh, 24-7 power exchange or other kinds of submission, but a lot of service bottoms that I talk to report something very similar of it being like an incredibly life-affirming and almost transcendental experience of being able to love someone that unconditionally. Very different context and a very different thing, but there are some interesting similarities. Hmm. I just wanted to bring well, them up more. Yeah, and I'm sure there are other aspects of life that are the same. but mm. It's pretty different with a, with a child, though. Like there is the yeah. the freedom of knowing that 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 child or that um, I parent. Just, I just thought it was interesting that life is sort of bookended like that. Mm. Yeah. You, you're. What's the word I want? You're. As a tiny baby, you're completely at the mercy of someone else's. I mean, you have no ability to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And you require, and it's the same often at the end of life. People are very vulnerable and have, can't even get up, can't clean themselves if they, yeah. you know. So yeah, at both ends of life. It's an unfortunate bell curve. <clears throat> can't be a good feeling to be on the way down. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it can be. I suppose. It could be a relief depending I think, on your quality of life. I think the biggest plus for me toward going on the down, and I'm on the downward curve now probably, was having my friend Rani in the dining room, in the Mm. ashram, tell me about how another friend of mine passed away and did it consciously. Mm. Did I tell you that story ever? Do you want to actually save it for the ashram episode? Yeah, okay, because that that fits, that's where it was, and he was one of my uh, dear friends and one of the people who influenced me a lot and helped me a lot in the ashram thank you so much for talking about childhood thank you for doing all this too yeah so how was it intimates did you love something you heard or maybe you're upset by something i said leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or you can go to patreon.com slash victor salmon where you can find our discord server all of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com and i genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon if you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.